You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash true crime. Without the fans, there is none of this. Wednesday, August 9th. I'm so honored to be here. Baby, you're a rock star. America's biggest super fans meet their superstar idols. Yeah! And compete for a once-in-a-lifetime prize. That is correct! I'm going to take them through my new record, song by song. You can pick a song, and we can sing it together on stage. And the title of Ultimate Superfan. It is up to you, America. Superfan. Superfan premieres Wednesday, August 9th on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Superfan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 326 of the True Crime All the Time Unsolved Podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and with me, as always, is my partner in true crime, Mike Gibson. Gibby, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm I'm hanging in there. It's been yeah. a rough week for my wife and I. Uh, you know, we dropped our youngest off at college, and so it's just different. Yeah. There's no body running around the house. The kitchen's not a mess, and we miss it already. And I get to sit at any spot I want at the table now. Oh, until my daughter hears this, and then you're going to be in big trouble. Well, that's true. Yeah. Just yep. joking. <laughs> Let's go ahead and give our Patreon shout-outs. We had Carolyn. Hey, Carolyn. Christine Kenny. Hey, Christine. Kelly Bard. Appreciate that, Kelly. Demetrius Anderson. Hey, Demetrius. Anya Hoffman. Appreciate that, Anya. Danita Briscoe. Hey, Danita. Melissa Rogers jumped out to our highest level. Wow, thank you so much, Melissa. Michelle Mills. Hey, there's Michelle. Silly Little Bit. Well, a little bit, thank you. Tiffany Wallace. What's going on, Tiffany? Janae Say. Hey, Say. Easy my four one one. My four one one in the house. And last but not least, Misty Summer. Well, thank you, Misty. And then if we go back into the vault, this week we selected Emily Gart. There's Emily. Yeah, we appreciate all the Patreon support we get. We had some great PayPal donations from Christian Kaufman. Hey, Kaufman. Deanna Johnson. What's up, Johnson? And Tara Lynn Luck. Hey, Tara Lynn. So thank you to everyone. Gibbs, we have an episode out right now on true crime all the time where we're talking about Audrey Marie Hilly. And this is a woman who was a, a poisoner. She essentially tried to poison just about everyone in her family. She sure did. She didn't care who they were. No, she was greedy and didn't seem to care who she hurt. Yeah. I mentioned it on TCAT as well, but if you're going to crime con, we are planning a meetup for Saturday night at nine o'clock. And I forget exactly what part of the Marriott it's in, but I'll be giving uh, that info in weeks to come. I heard Morph is buying drinks for everybody. That's what he said. Yeah. Actually, he said he was just going to give his credit card to the bartender and whatever happened, happened. Those were his exact words. Yeah, I think you just walk up to the, uh, the bar and say, uh, he said he's paying. Yeah. Yeah. Just put that on Morph. Exactly. That's all you have to say. Exactly. All right, buddy. Are you ready to get into this episode of True Crime All the Time Unsolved? I'm ready. We are talking about the disappearance of Barbara Follett. Barbara Follett was once a famous children's author. As a young adult, she fell in love and got married, but the marriage was troubled. One day in December 1939, Barbara got into a fight with her husband and she walked out of the house. She was never seen again. And her whereabouts after she left the house are still unknown. Barbara Newhall Follett was born on March 4th, 1914 in Hanover, New Hampshire. Her parents were Wilson and Helen Follett. Wilson was an editor and literary critic. He wrote the book Modern American Usage, a grammar and writing guidebook, which wasn't published until after his death. And was a book I never read. I was just getting ready to say, is that a book you own? 
Is it a book that maybe you would be willing to buy off Amazon? I probably should. You probably should. Helen gave up her teaching job to homeschool Barbara because she showed signs of high intelligence at a young age. As did I. You did. Now, if you'd had this book, you would have shot even higher up the chart. Can you imagine where I'd be at today? I can't. You'd be too smart to even have a conversation with me, probably. Most likely. Almost there anyway. Barbara started writing stories when she was just four years old. When she was eight years old, she decided she would write a book by the time she turned nine. So, I mean, you talk about having dreams. That's one thing. Sure. You know, a lot of people at eight would say, well, by the time I grow up, I want to be a a major league baseball player. Famous soccer player. Yes. How many kids have a, a goal where they say, I'm eight now. By the time I turn nine, right. I want to do X, let alone write a book. It's pretty rare. I mean, <laughs> it is. I remember when I said, you know, I'm going to be a doctor before I'm 12. People were like, I don't think so. Well, you proved them wrong. I certainly did. Barbara wrote the now famous book. The House Without Windows, a story about a girl named Epperson, who was, in Barbara's words, a child who ran away from loneliness to find companions in the woods, animal friends. A few days after Barbara finished the book, her family's home was destroyed by a fire that started while they slept. No one was injured, but most of their possessions were lost in the fire, including the manuscript. Barbara decided that she would rewrite the story from memory. That just tells you how invested she was into the story, that she could remember it the way she had written it. Yeah, I mean, that part is amazing. It's also amazing to me that she had the fortitude to to move back forward with it. Yeah. Because, you know, you think about a house fire and what people lose. And I'm specifically thinking now about an eight, nine-year-old child, a blanket. Yeah. A favorite stuffed toy, they would be crushed. Sure, they would be. Inconsolable. She loses a manuscript that at eight years old was her dream. And she says, okay, I'll just rewrite it. And I'm still on chapter one, page one of my memoirs. Well, they say it's always toughest to get started. That's what they say. It is. Barbara finished writing in 1926. Wilson helped her edit the manuscript and then sent it to his employer, the publisher, Alfred Knopf. Barbara received an offer to have 2,500 copies of her book printed. The House Without Windows was published in February 1927. All the copies sold out and the book had additional printing afterwards. Barbara was called a child genius by many literary critics. Her book was even reviewed in the New York Times. This is really big-time stuff. Sure, yeah, she made it. She's 12 years old at this point. One critic, educator, and writer, Ann Carroll Moore, wrote in the New York Herald Tribune that Barbara's story was exquisite, but it would be better for her to have a normal childhood and not become a child celebrity. Now, this was a long time ago, right? 1920s. Right. You could say that exact same thing about almost every child celebrity that has come afterwards. Absolutely, you could. I mean, there are so many stories of child celebrities who just go down such a dark path. And and I do think there is something about hitting your peak at 9, 10, 12 years old. You're famous. What are you going to do now? How's life going to go any other way for most people like that than downward. And for some, it goes farther down than others. And how do you recover from that? And, and, and some don't. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's hard to. So could you make the argument that, you know, a lot of those people would have been better off had they had normal childhoods? You know, I'm thinking about, some of the folks from different strokes, they had issues, oh gosh, Dana yes. Plato and, and, um, Todd Bridges. And, you know, you can just go down the line of the number of child stars who ultimately later had 
real serious problems in life. And it's funny, you know that you know that movie with David Spade, Dickie Roberts, mm, Child something something, yeah, yeah, yeah. which kind of in a funny way addresses that. But at the end of the day, I think majority of those stars would say, you know what, we kind of wish we just had a normal life and didn't miss out on all the stuff that our friends got to do. Or I wouldn't trade the celebrity, but I would have done something different. I wouldn't have tried drugs or I wouldn't have done this or I wouldn't have done that. I think one of the problems is when you get something so big, you become so big. A lot of times you think, well, that's never going to end. Yeah. But for most people, it does end. Sure it does. At at some point. And then how do you deal with that? And Barbara continued writing after her first book was published Inspired by a new book idea about pirates, she started learning as much as she could about sailing by reading the dictionary and studying a compass, but she wanted to experience life on a boat for herself. According to The Guardian, at the age of 13, Barbara got a job as what was called a cabin boy on a lumber schooner heading to Nova Scotia. She started writing her book in July 1927 and finished in November. The Voyage of Normandy was published in March 1928. Well, she's at it again, right? I mean, she dove into her next book. At 13 years old? Yeah. So this is absolutely amazing if you think about it. This girl at the age of 14 has published two books. Yeah. And her second book also received rave reviews, but Barbara's success was marred by a personal tragedy. Her father left the family a week before publication. Wilson Follett told his family he was leaving to be with a younger woman. And at the time, he was their sole source of income. That makes it a little rough. Can make it rough. Well, on two fronts. Yeah. Number one, you're leaving for a younger woman. That's rough. Yeah. You're leaving your kids. And then you're the sole breadwinner. Barbara and her mother went on a trip to Tahiti, Samoa, Fiji, and Hawaii. They wrote an account of their travels, which was published in the 1932 book Magic Portals. So when researching this, what did kind of throw me off a little bit was, well, our dad left us. He's the sole provider. But we did do a world-class travel trip to all these exotic islands, you know, Tahiti. yeah. Yeah, I mean... So, not trying to diminish the fact that he left them high and dry, but maybe not as dry as it seemed. Well, and and maybe money from the book sales. Well, that's true, too. Paid for it. In September 1929, Helen left Barbara in Pasadena with two friends. Barbara said that the women planned to send her to a junior college. So, she ran away to San Francisco, where she was arrested on a runaway charge. She was on the run for three days and said, according to the San Francisco examiner, that she had a glorious time. Barbara reunited with Helen in New York by her 16th birthday in March, 1930. She got a secretary job to help make ends meet. And you have to think about it, right? This was the start of the great depression. Paul Collins, who wrote an article for the literary magazine Lapham's quarterly told NPR, here's Barbara Follett who had been getting reviewed in the Times 18 months earlier. And on her 16th birthday, she's desperately looking for work in Manhattan as a typist. Well, it's a good point, right? I mean, she has these wonderful reviews, turning out these incredible manuscripts, books, and now she's going to work for a company typing, not using her talents, her imagination, her gift for novels. It seems sad. Well, and some of Barbara's letters show her sadness about her situation. NPR published part of a letter she wrote in June 1930. Barbara wrote, my dreams are going through their death flurries. I thought they were all safely buried, but sometimes they stir in their grave, making my heartstrings twinge. I mean, no particular dream, you understand, but the whole radiant flock of them together with their rainbow wings, iridescent, bright, soaring, glorious, sublime. They are dying before the steel javelins and arrows of a world of time and money. You can see why. (laughs) (laughs) Did you write that? (laughs) 
It seems like I did. <laughs> no, you did not. <laughs> no, it, it's it's good writing. It I mean, is. it's it's flowery, but it's it's good. But you can see the sadness coming through. Sure, you can. She's got dreams, but she's not pursuing those dreams at, at this point in time. She's trying to make ends meet. It almost seems like it could be worse for somebody that got a good taste of it. Oh, I think it would be. And then it was pulled away. Sure. You know? Because she knew she could do it. Yeah. She knew she was actually good at it. Around this time, Barbara started writing the novel Lost Island, which was inspired by her relationship with the sailor. Lost Island was never published. Just a year later, it seemed like Barbara's future was looking promising. In 1931, Barbara met a young man named Nickerson Rogers, who went by the name Nick. He was described as an outdoorsman. They started off as friends, but later developed romantic feelings towards each other. You could describe you as an outdoorsman. I but, wouldn't. But, but indoor. But you could. Yeah. I'm an indoorsman. That's exactly right. At the age of 18, Barbara and Nick hiked the Appalachian Trail from Maine to Massachusetts Barbara later wrote a book featuring the Appalachian Trail titled Travels Without a Donkey. Always wanted to do that. Hike the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, all the way from Georgia all the way up to the top. I think you should do it. It's like six months. Ah, I still think you should do it. Just call in from the road. Hey. Take a a sabbatical. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Hey, T-catters. Just call in. We'll do the show from from your iPhone. Yeah. Barbara and Nick then traveled to Spain, France, and Germany so she could write and make notes for future books. So she did travel the world. She really did. (laughs) You know, at a relatively young age, they returned to the U.S. and got married in 1934. They lived in an apartment in Brookline, Massachusetts, and Barbara changed her name to Barbara Rogers. She eventually stopped writing. Barbara lived a pretty normal life for the next few years. She worked secretarial jobs And she and Nick did not have any children. Barbara spent the summer of 1939 taking dance classes at Mills College in Oakland, California. But Nick wrote to her requesting a divorce, claiming he met another woman. Barbara was devastated and came home early to try to save the marriage. But things deteriorated. According to the Los Angeles Review of Books, sources aren't specific about exactly what was going on, but It was stressful enough that Barbara started taking sleeping pills that she got from a friend. Well, she's losing her husband. Well, and I think that's stressful for anyone. If your marriage is on the rocks and your spouse says, I've met somebody else, I want a divorce, that's going to be a tough time in anyone's life. Sure it is. According to Lapham's Quarterly, Barbara wrote to one friend, there is somebody else. I had it coming to me. I know. Maybe she felt like because she wasn't there giving him the attention that a lot of spouses want when you're married, that he looked elsewhere. You're saying because she went away for the summer to take these dance classes? Yeah, I had a hard time being sure exactly what that meant. There is somebody else, meaning he had somebody else, or that there was somebody else that maybe she was seeing. And that's why she had it coming, or that's why she said she had it coming. I I don't know. There really was no context around it. On November 4th, 1939, she wrote a letter that hinted at suicidal thoughts. It read, on the surface, things are terribly, terribly calm and wrong, just as wrong as they can be. I am trying. We are both trying. I still think there's a chance that the outcome will be a happy one, but I would have to think that anyway in order to live. So you can draw any conclusions you like from that. Yeah. So basically saying, look, I have to be positive about this because if I'm not positive, there's no reason for me to live. Well, and also if the outcome is not positive, yes, something bad is going to happen. That's what I'm taking from it. 
True Crime All the Time Unsolved is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening right now are probably multitasking. Yep, while you're listening to Gibby and I talk, you're probably also driving, cleaning, exercising, or maybe even grocery shopping. But if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you can be doing right now. Getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $698 by new customer surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey folks, have you heard about microdosing? I can tell you right now, all sorts of people are microdosing daily to feel healthier and perform better. What is microdosing? Microdosing helps you get into that feel-good zone easier and, and stay there longer, which is where we all want to be. Our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. Microdose Gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you find just the right amount of good. I've been using them for a couple of months now, and they have helped me tremendously. These things are a game changer. My wife is using them as well. We use them for pain relief, anxiety, to help us sleep better. They work for a lot of different things. A lot of times during the day, I take half a gummy and it just puts me in the right space to get things done. They're also good for helping with recovery after a workout and helping you to be creative, stay in that creative zone. Got to check these things out. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code unsolved to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com and code unsolved. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there are times in our lives, all of us, when we're faced with tough choices and we're not always sure which path to take. These could be tough decisions around career moves, relationships, or really anything else in life. But therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. I have personally used BetterHelp and I love the service. It's very beneficial. I love the fact that I can talk to a licensed therapist from the comfort of my own home through my laptop. No driving to an appointment, no sitting in a waiting room. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash all the time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash all the time. In the early evening of December 7th, 1939, Barbara left the apartment after quarreling with Nick. All she took with her was $30 and some of her notes from work. According to The Guardian, Barbara once jokingly told a friend that she could always disappear if she felt like life was too much for her. Barbara didn't come home that night or the next day. And many consider Nick's behavior after her disappearance suspicious. Nick didn't report Barbara missing for two weeks. And when he finally did talk to the Brookline police, he requested no publicity. Well, that would seem suspicious to almost anybody, right? Why did you wait two weeks? And when you did, why didn't you want it put out there? Well, why not? What's that hurting? Well, it's harming the efforts to try to find her. Yeah. If you don't get the information out, then nobody's looking for her then nobody can report back a tip that they saw her. But I want to go back for a minute and talk about this statement that Barbara made to a friend, which is that she could disappear. And, you know, normally I'm not big on the disappearing on one's own theory. But when you look at Barbara, she had traveled all around the world. Yeah. 
she had been to a lot of different places. So was that what she was maybe referring to that she could, you know, go to Tahiti, live there, or she would know how to disappear because she had been places. Certainly easier back then to disappear than it would be today. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Nick returned to the Brookline police department in April, 1940 and finally asked them to publicize the case. He told the police he had been waiting for Barbara to come back on her own. So this is like what? Four months before he goes back to them and says, okay, now you need to publicize the case. Now he says, I was waiting for Barbara to come back. Four months is a long time. It's a really long time. On April 22nd, 1940, the Brooklyn PD sent out a teletype message to eight states. According to Lapham's quarterly, it said, Brookline, 139-422-40, p.m. McCracken. Missing from Brookline since December 7th, 1939, Barbara Rogers, married, age 26, 5'7", 125, fair complexion, black eyebrows, brown hair, brown eyes, dark auburn hair worn in a long bob, left shoulder slightly higher than right, occasionally wears horn-rimmed glasses. Okay, all of that sounds extremely normal. Yeah. I thought what was very specific and a little bit odd was the left shoulder slightly higher than right. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have one shoulder, I guess, slightly higher than the other. I've just never seen that in a description of a, a missing person. Me neither. But hey, why would you leave it out, right? If there's something that could possibly help someone identify someone, I guess you put it in. The bulletin was largely unnoticed by the press, possibly because it used Barbara's married name. Most of the country didn't know that the once famous author had disappeared without a trace. So maybe if they used her maiden name, it would have got more recognition. I think without a doubt it would have. You know, maybe they could have gone Barbara Rogers Follett or, you know, something to that effect. But I guess her legal name was Barbara Rogers. Helen Follett started her own investigation by speaking to people who were in contact with Barbara before she disappeared. Unfortunately, the trail went cold very quickly. In May 1941, Wilson Follett wrote an anonymous essay for The Atlantic titled To a Daughter, One Year Lost. That year, Nick attempted to divorce Barbara on the grounds of cruelty, but the judge dismissed the case. According to the Boston Globe, the judge ruled that dominating a party, making a husband uneasy and uncomfortable, and failing to cooperate in the home did not constitute cruelty. In 1942, Nick took on a job as a research fellow at the Dartmouth Eye Institute in 43, he became part of the physics faculty and moved to Norwich, Vermont. Nick filed for divorce in Grafton County, New Hampshire, where Barbara was born, on the grounds of desertion. He had a copy of the divorce libel sent to Helen Follett in New York and paid for notices in the Bristol Enterprise and the Plymouth Record because those were the papers closest to her last known place of residence. Well, his career's taken off. He wants to move on with his life. But he wanted to move on a long time ago. Exactly, before she even disappeared. But I did think it was strange that he first attempted to divorce her on the grounds of cruelty. Desertion, I get. She's right. gone. And you know, if he didn't have anything to do with it, at some point, I, I could see maybe you know wanting to move on with your life. Right. On December 16th, 1943, a legal notice appeared in the Plymouth Record the local paper for Plymouth, New Hampshire. The article was titled Nickerson Rogers versus Barbara F. Rogers and stated per the Los Angeles Review of Books in the matter of a libel for divorce and other relief, which is now pending in the Superior Court of Grafton. It appearing that the address of the libelee is unknown, it is ordered that the libelant give notice to the libelee to appear at the Superior Court next to be holding at Lebanon in said county of Grafton on the third Tuesday of January 1944. So these notices ran for three weeks, but 
No one heard from Barbara. She never appeared in court. Nick was granted a divorce in January 1944. He remarried six months later. Nick resigned from Dartmouth in 1945 to take a position at the Loomis Chaffee School near Hartford, Connecticut. So Nick's got his life. He's moved on. No one's heard from Barbara. There's no clues, no information where she's gone to. She's literally has disappeared. And it's been like six years. Yeah. In 1952, Helen pushed for the police to search for her daughter when she learned about how little effort Nick had put into the search. She told the police chief of Brookline, as quoted by Lapham's Quarterly, there is always foul play to be considered. She also told Nick, all of this silence on your part looks as if you had something to hide concerning Barbara's disappearance. You cannot believe that I shall sit idle during my last few years and not make whatever effort I can find out, whether Barr is alive or dead, whether perhaps she is in some institution suffering from amnesia or nervous breakdown. Well, she's right. He didn't really make any type of effort to find his wife. Well, I mean, let's look at Nick for a minute. The last person known to have seen Barbara, he was seeing someone else. Right. He wanted a divorce. So you have motive, you have opportunity. Yeah, you would have to say, and, and on top of that, we know the spouse is always, you know, high yeah. on the list anyway. And then if you add into it this, okay, late reporting and then not wanting it publicized, the guy doesn't look great. No. And I think today they would look into it a little deeper. Not sure why it wasn't looked into more back then. Well, we really don't know how much they looked into him. There wasn't a lot of information on that. The press didn't pick up on the case until 1966, when Helen and child genius expert Harold Greer McCurdy published Barbara, the unconscious autobiography of a child genius. And I was kind of taken aback by this. I mean, this is 27 years after... She went missing. Yeah. She was this famous child author, but yet the press didn't pick up on it at all for 27 years. I thought that was pretty strange. That's a long time. Helen first reached out to Harold in 1960 and offered to give him Barbara's letters, writings, and poetry to study. As the years passed, people with connections to Barbara passed away. Wilson Follett died in 1963. Helen died in 1970. Before she died, she donated Barbara's writings to Columbia University. Nickerson Rogers died in 1980. So basically anybody that had anything to do or knowledge of this case back then, they're all gone, right? Her parents, they're gone. Her ex-husband, gone. Well, and, and not just today gone. They, they've been gone for many, many, many years. Right. Because this case is so old. So then what is left, right? It's the mystery surrounding Barbara's disappearance. No one ever reported seeing her or hearing from her. And no one knows where she went after she left the apartment on December 7th, 1939. Now, if this was a case from, you know, four or five years ago, we might have surveillance video, might have ring doorbell video that would at least show us or tell us which way she was headed. Yeah. She made it to a store in 1939 without somebody coming forward and saying they saw her. You don't have anything. Right. But because Nick waited such a long time to report her missing and then waited even longer to publicize it, you lose all that time. Well, you do. And, and somebody at a store, if they found out the next day that this person went missing, would they remember it? Maybe. Yeah. Do they remember it four months later? Maybe not. A lot of people come in and out of stores. So, you know, four months is a long time, I think, for something like that. Too long. Too long. Yeah. Can you imagine if I tried that today? I might say I. What are you trying? <laughs> you imagine if somebody tried to say, hey, my uh, spouse, girlfriend, whatever, she's been missing for two weeks. I don't know where she's at. 
Two hey, weeks would be outrageous. But let's not put any in the paper right now because, you know, this is not just, I don't want to do that to her family. Yeah. You know? And, and, then, and then wait four months and go, hey, you know what? Have no luck finding her. So let's just go ahead and now nah, let's publish it. Yeah, you would be suspect number one. Absolutely. It sounded like you were giving something away there, like you'd been planning something. No, 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 no. <laughs> In 2019, author Daniel Mills wrote a summary of the case for the Los Angeles Review of Books. He proposed the theory that a set of human remains found in Holderness, New Hampshire, could have belonged to Barbara Follett. The commonly held belief is that the bones belong to a 25-year-old woman named Elsie Whitmore who went missing in 1936. However, there is evidence that calls this ruling into question. Elsie lived in Plymouth, New Hampshire. She was married to a construction foreman named Edward Whitmore, who was away from home often. At the time of her disappearance, she had a toddler and was pregnant with her second child. She and Edward lived with his parents to save money. Newspapers describe Elsie as highly esteemed and of high character. In the summer of 1936, Edward was away from home in Fairleigh, Vermont. Elsie was slightly depressed and began a new habit of taking walks in the evenings. On June 29th of that year, Elsie ate dinner with her in-laws, but she complained that she was experiencing indigestion and she went out for a walk. She wore an overcoat over her summer dress because of the wind, as well as a beret, but didn't take any of her belongings with her. The family never saw Elsie again. They looked for her that night by searching her normal routes through town. They reported her missing on the morning of the 30th. A massive search of the woods outside town was launched, and volunteers searched the local Pimijawasset River. Dogs tracked Elsie's scent in town, but lost the trail. Some speculated that she had gotten a ride somewhere, but the police didn't take this theory seriously. So let's just, you know, kind of look at these two. Like we often see, you know, they reported her missing the very next morning. Did not wait. Did not wait. As opposed to Nick, Nick, who waited a long time to do both things, report and then give, you know, say go public with it. Elsie's stepmother insisted she was abducted, but the police didn't suspect foul play. Missing persons flyers were distributed across Northern New England. A truck driver reported that he was driving through Hill, New Hampshire on June 30th, when he picked up a young woman who matched Elsie's description. She said she was headed to New York and had walked through the night. He dropped her off in Franklin, New Hampshire. Investigators traveled to Franklin and learned that the woman was seen on June 30th at a landmark called Webster Rock. The authorities later said that the young woman was not Elsie. After this, the case went cold, just like Barbara. There were no sightings of Elsie anywhere, and no one heard from her. Edward didn't divorce Elsie until June 30th, 1948. Hung in there for a while. Yeah, 12 years. Yeah. On November 25th, 1948, a man named Harold Huckins was out deer hunting on Pulsiver Hill in Holderness, New Hampshire. Pulsiver Hill was once owned by the wealthy Pulsiver family. Huckins was following the Durgan Brook, where it goes around the Mount Prospect Trail. He found the depression by the water, where he found human bones lying out among pine needles and tree roots. He thought they were animal bones until he saw a pair of shoes. You know, I can't hike anywhere anymore without thinking I'm going to come across a dead body. Yeah. Or no, I signs get it. Of it. I get it. Yeah. You know, because we talk about all of these stories where people are out doing, you know, pretty routine things right. and they're stumbling upon a dead body. And I always think about, man, what would that be like? Now, I don't do a lot of hiking. So the chances of me actually finding a dead body are pretty slim. You have to leave your basement. I would have to leave my basement for that to happen. But I'm sure a lot of people that listen to true crime have that same thought. Sure. You know, if you're out somewhere, you're in the wilderness, you're walking along the riverbank or something like that, that thought has to pop into your head. At least for me, it would a lot more than 
let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago oh, right, yeah. when I, when I wasn't immersed or as immersed mm-hmm. into true crime. Same here. The New Hampshire state police and Grafton County Sheriff's office investigated the bones. They had been scattered by animals in the water, but investigators found the left tibia right radius and the bones from two feet still in the shoes. The shoes were described as sport Oxfords made of leather with rubber soles. Investigators also found a pocketbook, a woman's purse, and a metal glasses case with horn-rimmed glasses inside. I mean, it sounds promising. You know, you hear the horn-rimmed glasses, but I'm also thinking horn-rimmed glasses were pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to agree with you. The police found the neck of a canvas duffel bag and a compact with a colorful bird on it. An empty medicine bottle, a metal flask, a fragment of a wool overcoat, and part of a straw belt were also found. In November 1948, Elsie's in-laws Carl and Pearl Whitmore were still living in Plymouth, as well as Elsie's daughter. Daniel Mills noted that it's only five miles from Pulsiver Hill to Pleasant Street, Plymouth, where the Whitmores lived. The Whitmores were shown the glasses case, compact, pocketbook, and purse, but they couldn't identify any of the items as Elsie's. They felt certain the items didn't belong to her because she didn't wear glasses and she didn't take anything with her the night she disappeared. That's big news. Yeah, I think it is when you're trying to decide whether or not this person is Elsie. Yeah, I think if your loved ones can't identify any of those items unless they never see you and spend any time with you. But it sounded like her family did. And the fact that they couldn't identify any of the items found with the bones and she didn't wear glasses. Sounds like it wasn't her. The police officer who spoke to the family requested a fabric sample for comparison to the fabric found at the scene. Elsie's mother-in-law found a square of tweed fabric that was similar to Elsie's overcoat, the bones were taken to Harvard for examination by Dr. Alan Moritz from the Department of Legal Medicine. He spoke to an expert about the soil formation and root growth found at the scene and recovered from the piece of fabric. He found evidence indicating that the bones had been there for at least eight years, which meant 1940 or earlier. Okay, so now we're into Barbara's timeline. But we're still also in Elsie's timeline. Correct. Because she disappeared in 1936. Dr. Moritz measured the tibia and radius and estimated that the woman was approximately 62 to 63 inches tall, which did match Elsie's height. The hairs found at the scene were two to eight inches long, which matched her hair length. The hairs were light brown with a reddish sheen, which somewhat matched Elsie's light brown hair color. One incisor tooth was found that showed signs of unusual wear and belonged to someone 25 or older. The fabric was not identical to the sample provided by the Whitmores, but Moritz noted that this could have been due to decomposition. Elsie wore a five or five and a half size shoe, but the shoes found on Pulsiver Hill were size seven. There was one article from the New Hampshire Sunday News that speculated that the roots could have stretched out the shoes. So could this not also be Barbara? You know, eight-inch hair. I mean, she had a bob. Could it light brown with reddish sheen? Could that not be similar to auburn hair? No, I think, yeah, I think that's what we're going to get into. The flask found at the scene contained water, but... The medicine bottle contained traces of a barbiturate, which meant the woman most likely died of an overdose. At least that's what they thought. Dr. Moritz concluded that the remains were more likely to belong to Elsie Whitmore than any other missing woman in the area. The findings were reported to Grafton County Prosecutor Robert Jones and were released to the press on December 1st, 1948. The investigation was discontinued. So, I mean, it's interesting, and and I do understand what they're saying. They can't say with certainty that the remains are Elsie. What he's saying is that more likely than not, they are. And I get that. Sure. Now, 
the shoe size to me is kind of a big thing. Could roots actually stretch the shoes out two sizes or a size and a half and stretch both of them out the exact same way? Seems a little strange. It does to me a little bit. It was concluded that Elsie left the house on Pleasant Street and crossed the river into Holderness, then walked four to five miles to Pulsiver Hill, where she ended her life. Elsie's family contested the findings, noting the shoe size and the fact that the items found at the scene didn't belong to her. And I understand that completely. You know, the authorities are putting forth this theory, but the family's looking at it and saying, what you're saying doesn't seem right to us. Right. These shoes were way too big to be hers. None of the stuff that was found at the scene was hers. I get it. You're saying height-wise it matches, hair it kind of matches. I just think that kind of what you were alluding to, not only could these remains have been Barbara's, they could have been another woman as well. What the family didn't think was that they were Elsie's. Yeah, and let's not forget that a truck driver picked up, let's not forget that a truck driver said he picked up Elsie the night she went missing and dropped her off. And then later somebody said that they saw her. And later that was discounted by the police saying that wasn't her, but they never said they could confirm that the truck driver was wrong in his description of who he picked up. Yeah. And if the truck driver really did pick up Elsie and take her down the road, then it kind of blows the police's theory out of the water, right? That she left home walked to Pulsiver Hill and ended her life. Author Daniel Mills goes on to explain evidence that suggests the remains found in Holderness could be Barbara following. Mills noted that Dr. Moritz's conclusion was strongly informed by the height estimate, which he made using the Krogman's table, which is based on 19th century cadaver samples. In 1952, Mildred Trotter and Golden Gleaser published a stature estimation study, which gave more accurate formulas to estimate height for 20th century individuals. Based on their formulas, the woman would be between 64 and 67 inches, meaning she was probably a few inches taller than Elsie. The police bulletin that listed Barbara's description notes that she was 5'7", had dark auburn hair and a bob, and wore horn-rimmed glasses. So this, so this is interesting. Yeah. You know, he's using a 19th century kind of standard. Now the standard's been updated, which would have changed the estimation of the height to move it more into the range of how tall Barbara was. Slightly taller than Elsie. In the fall of 1937, Barbara was in the Squam Lake region of New Hampshire, which includes the towns of Holderness and Plymouth. She had also camped in Holderness with Nick in 1932 and 1934. So they knew the area. Nick knew the area. Oh, it's interesting the way you throw him back in there. Yeah. Because I see kind of where you're going. Meaning that, you know, if she disappeared on her own, she knew the area and might have gone there. But also if there was foul play that involved Nick, he knew the area as well. Barbara and Nick found an old farmhouse that they wanted to use as a skiing headquarters because at that time the area was considered a skiing destination. Barbara never wrote the exact location of this house. She wrote that the house was sitting on land owned by a prosperous farmer and they persuaded him to rent the house for a low price. Mills writes about the White House, which was once owned by the White family and was located on the northern side of Pulsiver Hill, a half mile from the Mount Prospect Trail. The Pulsiver family took ownership of the house in 1916 and rented the White House from 1920 to 1968. It's possible that Barbara and Nick rented this property for at least a year, but possibly longer. So this means they not only were familiar with it, they were very familiar with it if they lived there that long. Which means because they skied that area, they were very familiar with the area around it, the terrain. Again, to me, it makes Nick look suspicious. Well, that's if the remains are actually yeah. Barbara's. 
The Plymouth Record published information about Mr. and Mrs. Nicholas Rogers three times in 1938. All three instances mentioned a house or the camp on Pulsiver Hill. One instance specifically noted the White House on Pulsiver Hill. The paper did not report them visiting the house in 1939, but in 1940, it reported that Mr. Rogers and family from Cambridge, Mass., spent time at the house on Pulsiver Hill. The Rogers versus Rogers divorce file puts the location of the rental farmhouse in Campton, New Hampshire, and indicates they lived there part-time from 1937 to 1939. So, you know, it's been speculated that if Barbara and Nick were still renting their second home at the time of her disappearance, it's possible she chose to go there when she left the apartment. This would put her less than a mile from the brook where the bones were found. It's really close. Yeah, and, and going back to your point, you know, if you're looking at Nick, as a person of interest, which I think you have to. Sure you do. If she storms out of the house and is gone, doesn't come back, is it not at least plausible that he might think that's the place she would go? Oh, I would think so. I mean, you have other options, right? I mean, she could have went there, decided to take her own life. She could have went there. He could have taken her life and then made it look like she took her own life. And then there's other options, possibilities. But I think if the police would have investigated this back then a little deeper and realized that they had another home. They they might have checked it out. They, they might have found, found some, yeah. something. Yeah. I see, I see where you're getting at. But this all hinges on her going there. This hinges on the bones being hers. But if both of those things were true, then absolutely. What you're saying is a a very big deal. Yet another unknown in this case is what happened to the human remains found in Holderness. After the conclusion of the investigation, the case file was lost and a New Hampshire death record was not issued in Elsie Whitmore's name or in another individual's name. Shocking that a case file was lost. Right. Now, this was a very long time ago, but how many episodes do we do where... Evidence is lost. Entire case files are lost. It's possible the remains were given to the office of the chief medical examiner or that they were released for burial, but there is no burial record of the remains in the towns of Holderness, Plymouth, Concord, and Hanover. There is a lot of mystery surrounding the disappearances of both Barbara Follett and Elsie Whitmore. And with the passage of time, that mystery only grows. Based on what we know about her life, it seems like Barbara was a very spontaneous person who liked to travel frequently, but we also know that she wrote letters to her family and friends often and likely would have told someone where she was if she were alive and well. And and that's one thing I always think about, you know, if it can be the fact that you didn't take anything with you, but it's also... You know, a person who regularly talks to their family. Right. In this case, if she's wanting to get away because of Nick, wouldn't she still at some point reach out to her parents? Yeah. And say, you know what? I'm sorry. I worried you. I had to get away from for this reason. I'm writing you. I want to let you know that I'm okay. But I don't think she wanted to get away from Nick. Right, she chose to leave California to get back home early so she could try to save her marriage. It's a great point, you know. So I don't think she wanted to leave him. I th- we know that he wanted to leave her, and I think that's why there's there's suspicion on his part, no doubt. And a lot of people have pointed out that if Barbara was going to leave Nick, she probably would have taken more of her belongings with her when she left the house. And she likely would have responded to the order to appear in court. And I think those are two important things that people have pointed out. Yeah. Unless she felt as though she was in grave danger. And if she saw Nick, she was going to die. Other than that, why doesn't she take stuff with her? If she's planning on leaving, why does she, you know, miss this court date? Some of that you have to take into consideration. So I'm really torn. You know, as we wrap this one up, I think you can look at it a couple of different ways. 
Barber met with foul play, maybe at the hands of Nick, maybe at the hands of someone else. And a lot of the stuff that he did was suspicious. It was. We've, we've talked about that. Or, you know, did she run away to start a new life? You know, that was a theme that came up a lot in her writings. We mentioned that she had traveled extensively, probably a little bit easier than most people, especially back during that time frame. She would have been able to travel to some exotic location that she'd been before and maybe start from scratch. Could have. And then probably the third most likely scenario is that, you know, she ended her life yeah. at an unknown location. You know, maybe she came back early. He said, no, it's over. And, you know, that was the last straw for her. Yeah. She couldn't handle that. And, and she decided to end her life. I don't really know which way to go. It's a tough one. I mean, I lean more to the fact that I believe that those bones are hers. I think that was her at that location. I just don't know if he had a hand in it or if it was something she did on her own. But that's that's where I lean. I think one of the problems is, you know, this case is so old. Yeah. You know, where are the bones? Could They could do DNA testing, I'm assuming, now. Yeah, they could find the bones and they were... They would most likely have to exhume, you know, one of her parents yeah. or, you know, somebody like that. I don't know if her daughter is still alive. But maybe if so, they could do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, the, these are the tough ones, but also the fascinating ones. Because each person can pick, based on the available evidence, what they they think happened. Maybe we'll never know. Maybe someday they will figure it out. Maybe they'll find a bone. Right. And they'll be able to do DNA testing, you know, match it to someone in her family and, and confirm that it, it was her. I think if that were the case, then you really are kind of heading down one of the two paths that, that you mentioned foul play, most likely I would say at the hands of Nick, yeah. maybe possibly, or her ending her life in a place where she was familiar. Yeah. And if that is the case, then you, then you have to flip to the other side. What happened to Elsie? Yeah. Did she just go off on her own to start a new life or did something tragic happen to her as well? Yeah. It's kind of like two mysteries in one. Exactly. But that's it for our episode on the disappearance of Barbara Follett. We got some voicemails. You want to check those out? Yeah, it's here. Hi, Mike and Gibby. This is Lakota from Montana. Been a longtime listener. I found your guys' podcast when your first episode was released, and I just wanted to know if you guys could cover the case of Brianna Jai. If you guys could do that, that would be absolutely amazing. I would love to hear your guys' take on it, and I look forward to all of your new episodes moving forward. Thanks. Bye. Awesome. Thanks for the voicemail. That's not one I'm familiar with, but I'll put it on the list. Yeah, we'll check it out. And we will check it out. We love Montana. Oh, my gosh. You guys are killing me this episode with the Pimlico poisonings or whatever it is. Because you were talking about at the beginning about how the guy like was all mad at his dad um, for saying that his wife was having an affair with his brother and had besmirched her honor and like said something about challenging him to a duel versus taking him to court which reminds me of my favorite Simpsons episode ever, which is when Homer watched some video or some movie about some guy who like challenged some other guy to a duel by smacking him in the face with a white glove and saying, you've besmirched my honor. I challenge you to a duel. And then when a guy didn't want a duel, he would say, I demand satisfaction. And then the guy would just capitulate and give Homer whatever he wanted. So then he was going all around town, just smacking people with white gloves, besmirched honor, challenge duel, demand satisfaction, and getting whatever he wanted from everybody. And it was fantastic until he met a guy from Texas. And he challenged a guy from Texas to a duel. And then the guy was like, sounds great, Senator. Pistols are done. And Homer had to pack his family up, and they went to the old Simpson farm where the fields were all fallow, and he tried to grow some tomatoes and some, some tobacco, but he was no good at farming. So then he went to the uranium plant, to the nuclear plant, and he got a little uranium, and he sprinkled it on the field, and then the tomatoes and the tobacco mutated and combined into one gorgeous plant called tomaco, 
which all the animals got addicted to and broke down the house. And Phyllis and Philip Morris couldn't buy the tobacco from the Simpsons. And yeah, but anyway, it was my favorite episode, and I'm really glad you reminded me of it. And also, I'm glad that Gibby's hands are clean when he's eating the pinto beans by hand. That's very important. Stay safe and keep your own time taken by. Well, you really knew that episode well. Yeah. You know, I used to watch The Simpsons a long time ago. I mean, it's been on for like 87 years. or yeah. <laughs> It was on when I was a kid. Just don't. And I'm not a spring me. chicken at this point. Don't besmirge me. Just besmirge you? I would never besmirge you. Besmirged. Did I say it wrong? Yes, you said it wrong. It's besmirch. I just said, do not dismirch me. Now you said dismirch <laughs> with a D. Besmirched. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, you know. Simpsons is uh, high art, so they are. If we can remind you of that, we did good. We did good. All right, buddy. That is it for another episode of True Crime All the Time Unsolved. So for Mike and Gibby, stay safe and keep your own time ticking. Blockbusters are streaming free this month during Popcorn Summer Movies on Pluto TV. Watch Django Unchained or Transformers Dark of the Moon for an action-packed evening or The Truman Show and School of Rock for a good laugh with the whole family. Plus, Pluto TV has thousands of other free movies available on live and on demand. Download Pluto TV on all your favorite devices for free and start streaming now.